Good morning! Today is Sunday, the 20th day of May, 2017. In the early days of World War II, the United States Navy sent a blimp with a two-man crew on a four-hour mission to spot enemy submarines. The blimp returned, but without the crew. The men were never seen again. Today I have the story of the ghost blimp on the 127th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and your storyteller, Jeff Kelly. I hope everybody out there is having a fantastic day. Well, today in the United States, it's Memorial Day weekend. Memorial Day is a federal holiday for remembering the people who died while serving the country's armed forces. Basically, here in the United States, it's more or less an excuse to have a barbecue or family get-together. But I hope everybody out there, while you're eating that brat or burger today, take a couple moments to remember all those that gave up so much so you could have so much. Now, on today's show, I'm going to talk about two men who lost their lives in the service of their country. And I'd like to tell you that I picked the story because it was Memorial Day weekend, But the truth is, that's just a coincidence. When I came across the story of a ghost blimp, that was something I I couldn't resist. And to be honest, the story turned out to be a bit more than I actually thought it was going to be. So much so that the story is a bit long, so I'm going to keep my intro short and I'll get right into it. Now, here in the Midwest, we've been getting a lot of rain lately. In fact, my favorite hiking path has been flooded all spring long, and it's looking like we might get some more rain today. But you know what? That's okay, because I've got a hot cup of coffee and a mystery to talk about. It's the story of two men who went missing after leaving San Francisco in a blimp. This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. It was perhaps one of the strangest events to happen here in the United States during World War II. Incredibly, Airship Squadron 32 only lost two men during the entire war. The two men who disappeared that day. Decades later, their exact fate remains a mystery. It was almost impossible for them not to have been seen by somebody, but nobody saw them go, nobody saw them jump, and there's no relics of them at all. A real puzzle. In August of 1942, a blimp carrying two men left the coast of San Francisco to look for and possibly destroy enemy submarines. Five hours later, the airship was found, crashed in the middle of a suburban street. Two Navy men were missing. 
To this day, no one knows what became of the two men, leading some to call the mysterious airship the Ghost Blimp. Our story begins during World War II. The United States had been involved in the war for less than a year. Concerned with Japanese submarines sinking ships off the American west coast, the U.S. Navy began using blimps to locate and possibly sink such subs. The airships were built by the Goodyear Aircraft Company, but taken over by the United States once the war began. On the morning of August 16, 1942, one of the ships, a 130-foot craft that was filled with 123,000 cubic feet of helium, designated L-8, took off from Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay. It carried two 125-pound Mark 17 depth bombs, a 30 caliber machine gun, 300 rounds of ammunition, and two Navy men. The airships that they were using had a reputation as excellent flyers, and just days earlier, an inspection of L-8 deemed the craft to be in fine working condition. Flight 101's original plan was to have a crew of three, 27-year-old Lieutenant Ernest DeWitt Cody, 28-year-old Ensign Charles Ellis Adams, and aviation machinist Riley Hill. Both Adams and Cody were Navy veterans, married with excellent service records. For Adams, this would be his first flight in a Navy blimp. Moments before the L-8 was supposed to take off, unexpectedly, Riley Hill was ordered off the blimp. The reason for his removal from the crew is unknown, but it was most likely due to a weight problem. The morning of August 16th was foggy, and the heavy moisture in the air could have weighed the ship down. So the blimp took off with just two men. Riley Hill would later say, Adams had flown in large dirigibles and was thoroughly checked out, but he had never flown in the small blimps. This was an indoctrination flight for him that Sunday morning. The flight was a four-hour patrol that would take them on a 50-mile voyage. They would leave Treasure Island at about 6 a.m., travel past the Golden Gate Bridge, west to the Farallon Islands, then turn northeast towards the coast of Point Reese. Turning south, they would follow the coast back to where they came from. They were due to return around 10 or 10.30 a.m. At a little after 6 on an overcast morning, the airship took off, and for a while, everything went as planned. At 7.38, an hour and a half into the patrol, Cody radioed in a message saying, I'm investigating suspicious oil slick. Stand by. Those were the last words heard by the crew. Riley Hill, the man removed from the blimp's crew just before takeoff, later said, When it came time for further explanation, and we didn't get it, we just assumed... Well, it was negative, and they went on their way. See, an oil slick in the water might mean an enemy submarine. They were seen by the Liberty ship Albert Gallatin dropping two smoke flares into the area. The Liberty ship watched for over an hour. A nearby fishing trawler, Daisy Gray, was watching the blimp as well with binoculars, and later they would say that they saw two men in the cabin at the time. The blimp slowly descended to about 30 feet above the water, as if they were trying to get closer to look at something. At 9 a.m., the L-8 dropped their ballast, increased altitude, and appeared to be heading back to San Francisco. 
This was unusual since they were supposed to be heading towards the Farallon Islands. Soon after, wing control began attempting to re-establish radio contact, but the blimp didn't respond. This wasn't unusual because the loss of radio contact was common, so for a while the ground crew didn't worry. But as time went on, the Navy began to get concerned and sent two Voigt OSU-2 Kingfisher float planes to look for the airship. At 10.49, a Pan American Clipper pilot reported seeing the blimp over the Golden Gate Bridge, and from what they could tell, it was flying calmly and was being controlled by a pilot. There was nothing there to indicate trouble. It appeared to be heading back to base. At around 11 a.m., the L-8 was spotted by one of the searching Kingfisher planes. The blimp was rising up to about 2,000 feet, which was very unusual for an airship, since 2,000 feet was the height limit for this type of craft. Higher than that is dangerous due to the ship's gas pressure at such a height. Yet it seemed to be under a pilot's control and was flying smoothly. When the ship headed into the low cloud cover, the search planes lost visual contact. An Army P-38 pilot spotted the craft near a place called Mile Rock and figured also that it was heading back to Treasure Island. Richard Quam, an off-duty seaman, was driving along the coastal highway between San Mateo and San Francisco, planning to spend a day at the beach when he spotted the ship in the air, and he knew something was wrong. He said it was bent in the middle in a V-shape. He took pictures of the ship, and those were later confiscated by the military. At around 11.15, the airship approached the shore at Ocean Beach, eight miles from where it was supposed to land, about 50 feet above the water with its motors silent. It was sagging in the middle. Bruce McIntyre was a witness, and he told a reporter what he saw. He said, It was dished on the top and appeared to be drifting with its motors off. It was so low I could see the shroud lines almost touching the hilltop. The shroud lines are the ropes that the ground crew uses for takeoff and landing. A swimmer on the beach, Mr. Capavilla, saw the 47-foot-wide blimp almost on the surface of the water heading right towards him. He watched as it hit the beach. The blimp's wheel scraped against the sand for a moment as it moved inland. The gondola hit the side of and moved up a hill. The propellers were bent, and one of the depth charges it carried came loose and rolled down the hill. The loss of this 325-pound bomb caused the ship to start rising again. It disappeared from his sight. Golfers at the exclusive Olympic Club in San Francisco stopped playing as they looked up and saw the blimp overhead. Soon hundreds of people were following the airship as it awkwardly floated above the ground. Within minutes, the local fire and police departments were giving chase. In an article in the Aviation History magazine, they talk about an interview with 17-year-old C.E. Taylor that was in the San Francisco Call Bulletin. He said, I put my binoculars on and could see figures inside the cabin. If there were truly people in the cabin at this time, it adds so much more to the mystery, especially when the Navy gets an anonymous call saying the blimp has crashed into a golf course and they have the crew. No one knows who made this call, and it gets even stranger because shortly after, they get another call, again anonymously, saying the men are not aboard. 
The rogue ship continued to drift and hit a couple of rooftops in a San Francisco suburb called Daly City. According to historian Ken Gillespie, who lived in Daly City at the time, one woman's house was almost hit by the airship. It was Mrs. Appleton. She said that all of a sudden, this huge behemoth had settled and scraped across the top of a roof. She said it sounded like chains dragging, but the entire house was blacked out because of the size of the thing. She raced to the front window, wondering what in the world was going on, and then she saw the rest of it. At about 11.30, it finally came to rest in the middle of the 400 block of Bellevue Avenue. Deputy Marshal Sean Wood of the Daly City Fire Department said, You couldn't have lifted it down any easier than it dropped on Bellevue. The cabin's nose hit a utility pole, and when the tail swung around, electrical wires fell, causing sparks on the ground. The fire department had concerns about the blimp's fuel supply igniting. But finally, when the firemen looked into the cabin door, they were surprised to find no one was inside. The door had been latched open, and the microphones for the loudspeaker system, which is used to communicate with surface ships, was dangling outside the door. The ignition switch was on, as was the radio, and there were about six hours of fuel left. Lieutenant Cody's cap was resting on the instrument panel, and two of the three life jackets were missing. But since the crew was required to wear the life jackets at all times, this wasn't a surprise. All three of the ship's parachutes were still there, and so was the inflatable raft. The locked briefcase with all the top-secret codes was still aboard, and oddly, some of the fuel had appeared to have been dumped, and the only reason the crew would have done that is if they wanted to rise up in a hurry. Just two days after the crash, the Navy concluded that there was no good reason for the men to have left the ship voluntarily. There had been no fire, no attacks, no bad weather, or technical malfunction. An investigation was begun, but nothing was found, and both men were officially listed as missing. When Commander Donald M. Mackey, a Navy spokesman, was asked if they could have been attacked by the enemy, he responded, That's very remote and he was at a complete loss to explain the mystery. Another spokesman said, Nothing the Navy knows now has given a satisfactory explanation of what happened. So at this point, people began calling the airship the Ghost Blimp. So what happened to the crew of Blimp L-8? Of course, there were many theories. Many have gone with the UFO abduction angle. But let's be real, we're not going to go there. One possible explanation is that when the men lowered themselves down to the water's surface, they were surprised by a Japanese submarine who took them prisoner or killed them. I mean, if you think about it, if you are on an attack sub and you rise to the surface and right above you are two men in a blimp that could either radio your position or drop depth charges, you'd have to take action. But this idea is probably unlikely. One of the most creative theories, which began not much after the disappearance of Cody and Adams, involves some sort of lover's triangle, both men in love with some mysterious woman. During the flight, one of the two men, in a jealous rage, killed the other and then dumped the body into the ocean. Then, sometime before the blimp landed, jumped off. 
Maybe he was killed when he fell, or maybe he lived and changed his name and began a whole new life. Or could it have been a murder-suicide? While this was a rumor at the time, I don't think anybody actually takes this scenario all too seriously. The most likely explanation, according to the Navy, was that at some point during the flight, one of the two men climbed out of the cabin, probably to fix some sort of mechanical problem. He either fell or got himself into some kind of trouble, and that led to the other man climbing out of the cabin to help. This might account for why the door was latched open, you know, to make sure they could get back in, and why the microphone was dangling outside the door, using the loudspeaker to talk to the man that had just fallen. Then it goes that maybe he fell in the water as well. But the problem I see with that is both men should have been wearing their life jackets. After all, they were missing from the ship when it was found. And the seas were calm that day. A massive search over the area found no sign of them. I mean, you can float pretty long in a life jacket, right? And what about 17-year-old C.E. Taylor, who said he saw men in the cabin when it was over land? And the first anonymous call saying that they had recovered the men? And in testimony during the Navy's investigation, Witnesses from Daisy Gray and the Gallatin testified that during the time they were watching the blimp, its crew was aboard, the engines were running, and they saw no one fall from the cabin. And if we assume that they disappeared after investigating the oil slick and were heading back to base, why didn't they use the radio to report what they were doing? Another interesting theory came from Commander of Airship Patrol Squadron 32, Lieutenant Commander George F. Watson. He stated under oath that he was puzzled as why the blimp was 200 pounds overweight that morning. He thought that maybe one of the enemy might have stowed away on the ship. Of course, the problem with this idea is there was no real place to hide in the small gondola of the ship, and the fact that none of the classified material was missing makes this highly unlikely. But what about the weight? Could the damp air have really been to blame? Now, I want to tell you about a man named Otto Gross, who has his own theory that could explain a lot. A few of my sources quickly mentioned Mr. Gross and his theory, and I have to admit, when I first saw it, I thought it was going to be another wild conspiracy-type theory done by somebody who doesn't know what they were talking about, but... I learned that Mr. Gross has been investigating the L-8 since 2009 and doing a really thorough job of it. He's gathered a lot of official information during his investigation. Unfortunately, his website, ghostblimp.com, is no longer active. He has another site called ghostblimp.blogspot.com that has quite a few entries, but all the images were missing. I went through many of his entries and couldn't quite get a handle on what he was saying, so... I happened to find out that he had a Facebook page, and I sent him a note asking for his opinion on what happened to the L-8. And to my surprise, he sent me a very nice email detailing exactly what he thought had happened. Now, his email is a bit too long for me to read here, and I will post it on my Coffee with Jeff website for you to read. The link will be in today's show notes for this episode, but the bottom line is... The ship was involved in a secret radar experiment for detecting enemy submarines. The equipment added to the blimp accounts for the added weight. Now this experimental radar caused the men to have what is known as AM radio fever. 
on the way back to the base, the fever caused the men to become disoriented and maybe fall out of the blimp. And the loss of helium that caused the ship to fold into the middle like a V was caused when the blimp, now lighter without the men, rose too high and an automatic valve, which is set to open for safety reasons, did so to release some of the helium. And once again, thanks Otto for your email. That was very nice. Now as far as Cody and Adams, one year after their disappearance, the U.S. Navy declared them both dead. One last thing, and this is something Otto pointed out, but I'm going to read directly from the book, Flights of No Return, Aviation History's Most Infamous One-Way Tickets to Immortality by Stephen A. Ruffin. He writes, A final ironic twist occurred five years later that made the whole matter seem even weirder. On August 22, 1947, Lieutenant Cody's widow, Helen, wrote a letter to the U.S. Navy Bureau of Personnel that ended up in Cody's Department of Defense personal file. In the letter, she stated that her mother had recently seen her son-in-law, Ernest DeWitt Cody, in Phoenix, Arizona. Helen explained that her mother, who had known Cody very well, described him as looking peculiar, as if he was suffering from shock or mental illness. For that reason, as well as the fact that Helen had since been remarried, she declined to approach him. Helen ended the letter by requesting that the Navy look into this matter. However, it is unlikely that they had any inclination to do so. The actual letter, if anybody wants to read it, is on Otto Gross's website, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes for today's episode. So after all this was said and done, and the blimp, the ghost blimp, was cleaned up from Daly City, whatever happened to the ship itself? Well, it was restored and returned to the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company after the war, and it became one of the blimps in their fleet of blimps that would attend sporting events all over the world from 1969 to 1982. If you watched any sporting event in the 1970s, you probably saw the Ghost Blimp, now known as the Goodyear Blimp America, flying overhead. When the Goodyear Blimp was retired, its gondola was put into storage and then was given to the National Navy Aviation Museum in Pensacola, Florida. It has been restored to its World War II appearance with the letters L8 painted on the side. I was on the way home from Sunday school and I saw this big gray thing coming in over what I thought was going to be right over Templeton Avenue. When I saw this thing coming in through the sky, I was very surprised, as were a lot of other people, because things like that just didn't happen in Daly City. Flight 101 quickly lost altitude and headed straight for the homes in the hills of Daly City. One woman's house almost became the point of impact. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. This is one of those um, stories that there's so many un unanswered questions. I find it a bit frustrating. No explanation seems totally satisfactory. I guess what would be a big help is if we knew exactly when the crew was lost, but uh, I don't think we'll ever know that. If anybody else has a theory to what happened or more information that I don't know about, please email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. I'd love to hear it. 
You know, if you do an internet search, you'll find some amazing images of the L8, including it returning, bent in the middle because of its loss of helium, and you can see pictures of the wreckage on the ground after it crashed. In Mr. Gross's email, he told me about two other blimps involved in a tragedy, the L2 and the G1. They were both involved in a mission to help identify enemy subs when they crashed into each other. Twelve men lost their lives in that horrible accident. The only man to survive was a Dr. Franklin Gilbert, who would eventually become the head electrician for Paramount Pictures. Otto Gross ended his email by saying, Have a great Memorial Day and remember the crews of the L-8, G-2, and G-1. I'll do that, Mr. Gross. Well, that wraps up today's story and now the ending credits. You know, it costs dollars to keep a podcast network going. It truly does. We could really use a few more subscribers over at our Patreon page. Just go to psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, look for the Patreon link on top, click on it, and become a member. Every dollar helps. And of course, a sincere thank you to every one of you who already support the show. Speaking of PsyCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other quality shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. The History Files just posted part two of their World War I story. If you're like me, you'll learn a lot of stuff that you, you never knew. Gordon's knowledge of these subjects is, is amazing. And you can check out this and other shows at PsyCon.fm. You know, you're invited to email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or just say hi, go ahead and do so. I answer every email. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Your story ideas are always welcome and always appreciated. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin and I can understand that, then just go over to iTunes and, you know, leave a review or a couple of stars or something. Those help the show tremendously. And remember, all the links to the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. My wife of 32, no, no, to my wife of 33 years, because we just had our anniversary. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme song. And to all of you who listen to the show, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost the show on Facebook and Twitter or wherever. You have a special place in my heart. Thanks to everybody. I'll be back in two weeks with another thrilling story. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream 
make it now, he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Bean Town. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee Coffee with Jeff Thank you.